We're going to return to Galatians tonight. Galatians has six chapters, and we're going to finish chapter three tonight. We'll be pretty much halfway done. Just to refresh our memories, Galatians was written by Paul, very likely his earliest, one of his earliest letters. It was written to a group of churches in a region, not a specific church in a specific city. They passed the letter around. The problem that Paul was addressing is false teaching. Every one of Paul's epistles that I know of that he wrote, uh, he had to address this in some form or another, almost in the same almost in the same way to the same degree. They used the same tactics. They would try to discredit Paul. First couple chapters of Galatians, Paul had to defend himself. He had to prove his apostleship. He had to prove his, his salvation, his uh, authenticity. In our study today, Paul will compare two covenants, Abraham's and Moses'. Both Abraham's and the Davidic covenant, they both flow into their culmination in Christ and His finished redemption. If you did not get to hear Austin's excellent miniseries on covenants, go back in the archives and find that and listen to it. If you want to turn to Acts 13, I'd like to read a little bit of what... Uh, how Paul described this. Uh, what Paul had to say about this. Acts 13, verse Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, 40 years. And when he had moved up, Paul gave a long, he gave a long discourse here. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he had testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, remember that word, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Paul is giving a, a heads up, saying this was, Jesus was the fulfillment of the covenant with David. Also, let's look in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He tells uh, more about Jesus and how he fulfilled this. This is a very uh, familiar <coughs> scripture.
For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's why it is through Him that we offer our amen to God for His glory. If you have a Matthew Henry commentary, look that up and read the notes on that. It's very, very good stuff. These false teachers that came to Galatia, they followed Paul everywhere, and they would, uh, they would try to win people over instead of being a Christian as we're taught in the New Testament. They would come up to them and put their arm around them and say, listen, hey buddy, I like you. You seem like a nice guy. So you want, you want to have a relationship with God? Yeah, Jesus, Jesus was a good man. But if you really want to be right with God, you need to be Jewish. Jewish. He says you need to be, you have to have the Jewish faith. Part of that, and Paul in his letters, he would, he would call this the party of the circumcision. This is not, uh, not new. The way that they were doing it in the New Testament times, uh, in the New Testament church, was really underhanded and dirty and a false way to teach. It was an ugly doctrine. The fact that people could enter the Jewish faith is not new. I wish I had told you all this before, and most of you are probably familiar with it. It goes way back. Uh, some people actually wanted to be a part of the Jewish religion. Sometimes, remember the story in Genesis 34 when uh, Jacob's daughter Dinah was uh, molested and they made a covenant with them, them men that done this with their, with their village. They said, uh, we'll, we'll uh, let this go. You can marry her. We'll be friends. We can, we can uh, trade back and forth just like the other Israelites. The deal is, what did they have to do? They had to be circumcised. Now, that didn't make them Jews, but that's just one account of when it... People would do this, is what I'm saying. In Acts chapter 2, verse 10, it also mentions proselytes. Some people wanted to be part of the Jewish faith. Uh, also, in, in chapter 3, verse uh, 15 through 20, we see another one. Also, in Acts, Nicholas, named as one of the uh, Jews to help in the church, it says he was a proselyte to Judaism. Some people came willingly. The people we're talking about here, they would come and say, if you want to really, said, faith in Jesus is good, but if you really want to be right with God, you need to be Jewish. You need to have, that might, have been, might not be the best way to say it, because you have to be born a Jew, but they were saying, you have to adopt our faith. Uh, just to recap, we're going to go back in uh, chapter 3, in verse 15, and I'll go, you can follow along down your, down your page there. This is uh, where Abraham is introduced as our example of faith. In verse 15, in chapter 3, we see the language of a will. There will be more family references later. A will, a son, an heir, adoption, all these things later. We see the language of a will in verse 15. 16, the word promises comes up. This is a commitment or a covenant. Some of these words are interchangeable. That's why I'm trying to uh, familiarize us with these 
with these terms. Offspring. He makes a point to say this word offspring refers to Christ. In verse 17, the law, this is a general term. It refers in here to the Mosaic Covenant. You'll notice when we're reading our scripture tonight, when we're going down through here, order and timing is stressed until, before, things like that. Watch out for, for words like that. In verse 18, we see the law and the promise contracted. Contrasted, I'm sorry. Uh, Paul had us sing Amazing Grace because law and grace are contrasted in these, uh, in these covenants, in these uh, agreements. Law and grace are mutually exclusive. As far as salvation goes, it's one or the other. Get on one side of the fence or the other. In verse 19, he asked the question, what's the purpose of the law? Well, the purpose of the law is to point out sin. In, a, in our Bible, he calls it transgressions. Also, we also find out that the law, as described here, is temporary. Remember I said the timing words, until, watch out for that. He said also that the law was mediated by angels. Uh, I, did, I failed last time to make this distinction. One of the things that God used to specify that the way of the covenant of law was inferior to the covenant of grace was he didn't do it directly with Moses like he did with Abraham. It says that the law was mediated through angels. And again, I'll, I'll make the point that I don't know exactly how that happened, but it says it right there in the Bible that it was mediated through angels. Uh, remember, Abraham's promise was directly from God. No, no mediator. That's a superior covenant. In verse 20, it says that Abraham was a recipient, not a participant. How did he participate? He slept. This is a unilateral, one-sided covenant. All of grace. God came to him. He did not go to God. The terms law, the terms I want you to be familiar with are law, in the Old Testament, that, that's their Judaism. That means uh, their ceremonies of works. Circumcision also falls into that category. Uh, scripture, we're going to see the word Scripture. In my Bible, it's capitalized. That means the law. The promise means a covenant, uh, especially talking about the Abrahamic covenant here. And faith is contrasted with law. Here, it's talking about the new covenant particularly Jesus. So, let's begin with verse 21. He just got through describing that uh, the law came through angels. And I'll read, I'll read through the end of the chapter and I'll just come back and, and comment as I can. Is the law then... Contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, notice all the timing language here, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In verses uh, 21 22, we see the relation of the law to the promise. It's stated and described as both temporary and negative. What do we know about the law? As far, we're still talking about salvation. These Judaizers were telling the people in Galatia not to be sanctified. You keep the law. That is a tool that God uses to sanctify us. He's saying, no, you have to keep the law in order to be saved. That's not true. The law cannot, never could save, wasn't intended to save. It was intended to picture a rat in a maze with a lid on it with no exit. Every way he turns, he has to go back. There's no way out. All, the law is all the time blocking the way. Nope, don't go that way. Nope, don't go that way. Look, here's where you messed up. That's, why the, that's what the law does. It points us to our need of a Savior. So, last time we discussed the timing of it. And I said, uh, does it cancel it out? No. The giving of the law on Sinai 430 years after the giving of the Abrahamic covenant does not cancel out the covenant of grace and the promise of a Savior through Abraham. That's not the way it works, but law comes alongside. It's subservient to it. It works along with it. He uses the strongest uh, contradiction here. Is it contrary? No. Strong, hard, never. It could not be that way. God does not give bad gifts. Complimentary? Yes, it is. Law is subservient to grace. For an example of that, let's look at Romans chapter 7, verse 7. This is a familiar, and I have found out, and I think we're all learning this as we go through Galatians, that Romans is a very good commentary on, on Galatians. <laughs> what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. That's the same, same declaration there. No, never. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul is telling us here in his letter to the Romans, the law is necessary. The law is helpful. It don't save. It, does not, it was not ever meant to that. The law accentuates man's sin. It concentrates his attention on the problem. 
The law, because man is sinful, cannot ever reward him with life or justification or even satisfaction. Try to keep the law, you're never going to be satisfied and you're not going to satisfy God. Again, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, the end of verse 6, God made us ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, not of the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter, meaning the law, what does, the, what does it do? It kills, but the Spirit gives life. Moving on, verse 22. It says the Scripture. This is the one that was capitalized in my Bible. This is God's law. They had very little Scripture in Abraham's time, I feel like. He's saying, but this is God's truth. And what does he say about it? What does the Scripture do? What does the law do? It imprisoned. Just like that rat I described. This imprisoned means, it, it's a picture of a jail. The door's locked. That big clang, bam, and that big piece of steel goes wham in there. You're not getting out. You're not getting anywhere. It's securely locked up, hemmed in. The picture of this jail cell has sinners sitting there waiting for their death sentence to be carried out because there is no appeal. They're beyond any doubt guilty. The judge has passed sentence and he has no lawyer to speak for him. Wouldn't matter if he did. It's over. No hope, no escape. Also, we know that because of sin, because of the fall in the garden, and because people break God's law, here in this verse, it says, But the Scripture imprisoned everyone. No, everything. It imprisoned everything under sin. Even all of creation falls under this curse. If you want, if you want to know how, let's look in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All of creation, he says, everything is imprisoned under sin. As the expression of God's holy character and his perfect attributes, the law finds sin and condemnation everywhere he cares to look. Everywhere, in every person. No trouble finding something to condemn anybody by. Every sin in this scripture is called transgression in verse 19. Every sin calls for the same punishment. Every sin. Steal a piece of gum. Same. Kill somebody. Same. Death. No exceptions. No levels, no degrees or grades of sin in God's eyes. When compared to absolute holy perfection, you break the law, you've broke the law. 
You break a law, you broke it all. Continuing in verse 22, he describes that we're going to get this promise. We receive this promise by faith. Since all have failed and all are helpless and hopeless to the same degree, then it's only fair that the exact same solution is offered to all. There is one righteousness. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's look there. I like this uh, passage. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, here it is, our righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have a one solution for every sin. One punishment, one solution. One Savior for the same problem. Let's look in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, just like he described in Galatians, we have peace with God through our Lord Christ Jesus. Through Him, we have also obtained access to by faith, into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's one Savior. One righteousness, one Savior, once and for eternity. In Hebrews chapter 7, we read this about the priest. How is he our righteousness? How is he our priest? How is he our Savior? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, Jesus, permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. The promise is given so that we can have Jesus, a Savior, and righteousness, and a, and a priest forever through one man. In verse 23, we're moving on. He's showing the timing here. First he shows in verse uh, 23, 22 there, the effect of the law, the nature of the law, the relation of the law, and what it does for us as far as relationship with Jesus. He gives more timing, more ways for us to know how this happens. He 
we have the example of a, ga a jailer and a pedagogue. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, in prison. Remember the prison I described a minute ago. How long? How long does the law last? How long is it good for? Until the coming faith would be revealed. More accurately, it would be the object of our faith. Remember, law is the servant of grace, not the other way around. Salvation was not by law until Jesus came because we know that anyone who the Spirit revealed him to, and even in the Old Testament, was saved through faith looking ahead. No more, no less effective than us looking back to Christ's redemptive work. This verse can be seen as Paul describing himself in Judaism. It would not save. Yet the religiosity of it had fooled many. We all like to be in the in crowd. We all want our friends' approval. We all want to have influence. <coughs> That's what Paul was doing. He had the approval of a lot of people. It had fooled many, put Paul included, into zealous service that only fed the temple offering boxes and proud men's egos. In verse 24, the word that we see here, it says, So then the law was, past tense, our guardian. What is this word? Guardian. Pedagogue. Notice the word peta from pediatrics like we have now, referring to children. This man was a, a slave in a, in a Roman household, probably a mature person, a trusted slave that you would trust with your most prized thing, your most prized possession, your son. What was his job? He had the responsibility of getting these young boys to and from school. He was not the teacher. Some of our translations have a schoolmaster. That might make you think something different. He didn't work at school. He took the boy there, brought him back. If the boy wanted to go over there and stop and throw rocks in the creek, whack that leg with that hickory. He had been given the authority to discipline at his discretion. He was very responsible. If you had been entrusted with some important Roman man's son, would you take a chance on him not getting where he was supposed to get or getting back home? No. The boys all longed for the day when they would be away from this routine. So the law, when we sin before our conversion, delivers us back to the problem. Sin repeatedly. Consistently, the law don't sleep. It don't take a day off. It don't go on vacation. It's always pointing to our shortcomings and rebellion and selfish pride. He's always there saying, uh, uh, missed a spot. Clean that up. But like the law, like the law is like an MRI or an x-ray. The law can make sin. He'll make the sin very obvious but cannot in any way offer a remedy or a cure. It would be bad if you had a tumor and the doctor says, yeah, here it is, shows you a picture. Good luck with that. 
That's what we're looking at with the law. He points out our problems. He points out sin. He accentuates sin. Uh, he colors the sin red. Everything around it's white, so it stands out. In verse 24, we continue. In order that we might be justified. Why is all this taking place? So that, in order, not so we can work harder to keep the law or do more good deeds. The law is a jailer, remember? He's not a judge or a lawyer or even a self-help guru. <coughs> he shuts the door. He keeps you in prison until you're ready to repent. Jesus, however, kept the law perfectly in the place of everyone who repents and trusts Him. Let's look in 1 Peter chapter 2 and read a verse there. Verse 22. How do we know Jesus was sinless? Because the Bible says so. Where does the Bible say so? Right here. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We would do very well to follow that pattern. We very often, we almost always want to take, take the reins and take care of things ourselves. Jesus trusted the one that judges justly. He trusted his Father. Look in verses 25 through 29. More reference to the time. He says, Now that faith has come, he's showing the time schedule here, the law didn't exclude the promise to Abraham. But now that Jesus has done his work in the new covenant, he has canceled the need for symbols and guardians and suggestions. That's the ceremonial law. All these pictures and types. If you got the real thing, you don't need a, a type. You don't smooch a picture of your spouse if you got your spouse there. The guardian has been dismissed. His job has been eliminated. He'd been laid off permanently. Why? Look in verse 26. The son, not no longer a child, the son is grown up. He's no longer a little kid. How is this appropriated? Just like we read in, the, in verses before. Through faith. Does that sound familiar? Just like Abraham. We're back to Abraham. How do we appropriate our spiritual kinship with Abraham? Through faith. The Judaizers would tell people. They, they, they were proud of the fact that they could call themselves sons of Abraham. We've talked about this before. Uh, Jesus said, uh, if I wanted to, I could raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. That's not the thing. He told them plainly. Uh, it's not an actual blood relative, 
Think about the implications there. That would include most Jews even to this day, wouldn't it? If you want to trace it all the way down, all of them today, believing or not, if they believed, if they were had repented or not, if it was based on blood, how can that be? That's, that's a bad deal. Our kinship is actually better. It's spiritual, eternal. It cannot be compromised by outside ethnicity. Remember how closely God, God wanted to guard the children of Israel. Don't have anything to do with the Edomites or any of the other, uh, any of the other surrounding nations. He was, he was preparing the nation, preparing that nation for a man to bring forth the Messiah. Uh, if it had been by blood, that would have been messed up a long time ago. Let's look in Hosea chapter 2 and read what that says concerning this. Chapter 2, verse 23. Not only is it not by bloodline, God makes a point saying, uh, I'll pick who I want to. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. Remember these children of Gomer, the one called no mercy? And I will say to not my people... You are my people. It's not by bloodline. Also, let's look in uh, Isaiah chapter 10. Another of these instances of almost a veiled way that God would say these things. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 22 He's making the people making the uh, the point that there there'll be some there'll be a few there's not going to be all of them for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea only a remnant only a small amount of them will return destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness he said I'll I'll pour out destruction and judgment but it'll be righteous. It'll be in the right place at the right time. Also, if you wanted to look in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10, there's another uh, reference. Look in verse 26. Let's go back to Galatians. He says it's through faith, not law, not works, not bloodline. He says, just like we just read in Isaiah, a few, relative few compared to all the people in the world. In verse 27, we see that he says, who is it going to be? Who, who are we talking about? Who, who's going to receive this covenant? Who's going to receive this promise? As many of you as were baptized into Christ. He's telling the Galatians, not everybody is going to do it. He's saying, it don't happen by ceremony. We're not talking about universalism either. When Jesus died, he didn't save everybody. He says there's a specific number. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptized. Does that mean water baptism? I think they baptized people. 
You should be baptized, but that's not all of it. Spiritually baptized. He's saying you're put into Christ. How are we baptized into Christ? Before being saved, our fleshly minds are literally enlivened, energized by sin. It drives us. It excites us. And when Christ comes, though, we identify with Him. His Spirit turns us to follow Him. But He will not be where sin is in control. So we kill and starve the old man because he has to die. He has to go. But the Holy Spirit comes and now He drives us like sin did before. And He enlivens us and He excites us. We have been baptized uh, our word baptism literally means immersion. Have you heard somebody say that that man's just immersed in his work? He's just into it so much. It's all he can think about. It's all he can do. He's been plunged into it. That's a good picture. A believer is totally enveloped in Christ. What Jesus wants is what we want. He is Lord. And people who he has redeemed submit to him as Lord. We're baptized into Christ. Continuing in verse 27. When we follow the example he gave in Matthew 3.15, this, this is the account of uh, Jesus coming to John the Baptist. He said, will you baptize me? John said, I'd rather you baptize me. He said, no, you need to baptize me. When we follow his example, we make a public declaration of what Jesus has done for us and illustrate his death, laying down, the water comes over you, you're immersed, you're buried, and then the resurrection. It's a great picture. Paul is reminding the Galatians that they had already been through this process. The requirements had been met. Their salvation was complete. The Judaizers said, do more, do more, do more. That's what the law does. Give me more, give me more, give me more. Missed a spot, do that. Come back tomorrow, I'll tell you some more. He says, no, no, Jesus done it, it's over. Jesus had not only purchased it, he had personally delivered it to them. By saving and sending Paul to their region with the true gospel, Jesus had done it all. They hadn't done any of the work up until that point, and they didn't need to start. Remember in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Really? You want to start by faith? You want to start uh, by what Jesus has done and then stop him and you say, I got it from here, Jesus? How silly. Paul, in verses 28 and 29, let's read it. He says, once this has happened, not once you've been Judaized, once the Spirit comes to you and you repent, you turn and you submit to Jesus as Lord. That makes you different. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Watch these categories. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. By naming these categories, he pretty much included every type of people. 
they would recognize this. Since the Judaizers were Jews, he names them first. A Jew is not, a, is not saved simply by being born a Jew. Romans 9, verse 6 and 7 is just one place. Paul screams this over and over. The Greeks, he names next, were known to be intelligent, cultured, and their cities were beautiful and advanced, but they have no special status as far as deserving salvation. He points out the master and slave. He says a master is saved the same way the slave is saved. You can't reach much lower than that unless you want to mention women, which is what he does. They were pretty much property. They were not much more than a slave. This entire controversy, this entire subject we're talking about, Paul calls it circumcision. Now where does that leave the women? No, Paul says, it's spiritual, not fleshly. It don't matter about what you cut off of your flesh. He covers this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 20, he addresses salvation in relation to circumcision. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But you, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each man was called, there let him remain with God. It's not what you do with your body. In verse 29, almost done. And he qualifies this. The biggest two-letter word in the English language, if. If you are Christ, if Christ came to you through the convicting, drawing power of the Holy Spirit and you responded in obedience and submission and repentance, you are Christ. No matter what anybody says, the Judaizers could come twice a day for 10 years and say, eh, you didn't trim your wick right there on that lamp. Your uh, Hanukkah poles almost fell over. No. It's not, it's not the ceremonies. It's not, it's not the things that you keep. It's not the feast. It's not the days. It's not the clothes you wear. By faith, a person comes into the spiritual family of Abraham. Abraham started it all. He gave, he gave the example. God gave Abraham faith. Abraham exercised that faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God says, I know where you're from, Abraham. You've got a terrible background. Your family line is as pagan as it can come from, the Chaldeans. He says, but you know what? I'm going to stand for you righteous. He says, you're good. From now on, you're good. 
By faith, a person comes into the spiritual family of Abraham. Spiritual is superior to fleshly. That's what he's pointing out in these, in these covenants. He said, the law has a purpose. Don't throw away the law. It's good. It does not save. It helps you look back to the one that can save you. What about in a practical sense? What about all the literal? We talked about this a minute ago. The literal blood kin of Abraham and all the other Jews who died before Christ came without believing. What are you going to do with that if you think you have to be a Jew? Unless God revealed to them the true gospel, they were not saved. He says there's a small number, a remnant. He says, you don't, you don't come in a relationship with God by being born. Unless it's, That's why Jesus said you've got to be born again. It's spiritual birth, not nationality, not even inheritance. So... Are you putting hope in anything you've done for salvation? I think I mention this about every time I come up here. Salvation is not sanctification. Salvation is not the end. But you have to start with salvation. There's no way around it. And if you do it wrong, then you, you remain wrong. Are you trusting or putting your hope in anything anything that you've done. One of the quotes I like says, the only thing that you bring to, to be saved is a sin that made it necessary. That's what we bring to the table. That's, what Abraham, that's why Abraham slept. He couldn't participate in the ceremony. He couldn't bring anything to contribute. Maybe you're genuinely, genuinely saved. Maybe you got it right. Good. Praise the Lord. When you witness or when you're in a workplace or when you counsel others, do you proclaim God's grace or some personal conviction or opinion not clearly taught in Scripture? If you never have, repent. Trust Jesus. Change the way you live. To change the way you live without repentance is just a hassle. It's just going to make your life harder. Repent. Turn the way, the way you live around. Obey Jesus. Also, don't be a Judaizer. It's Christ's church. He bought it, not you. And if you're teaching anyone to be like you, repent. Change the way you see yourself and humble yourself before Jesus. There's two sides of this thing. There's the people who need to be saved and the people in our, in our position we're not actually doing the saving, but we have the gospel we have to give it to people accurately. We have to give it to people faithfully. The Judaizers did not. Paul did. And all these people were trying to add to it. Let's pray.